you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 12. Jesus has just presented himself as the Messiah to the Jews with a grand parade. He comes into Jerusalem with people putting their clothes and on the ground so that the animals will not have to step on the stones. And he's riding on a baby donkey. It's almost humorous to think of the Lord of glory coming into his capital city in the most humble of ways. But he is. And he is in, in all of that humility, almost silly, the last thing that we, that we read together last week was verse 19. This is verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive you how we prevail nothing. Behold, the world has gone after him. There, it's, the, it's the worst of all scenarios. They are afraid that people are going to go with Jesus and that it's going to cause such a stir that the Romans are going to have to clamp down as an insurrection, and they're going to lose their privileged place as the upper crust of the upper class, and they're afraid. They're afraid of losing their money. They're afraid of losing their position. They're afraid of losing their power. But they have all very, very clearly and together decided that they are going to publicly uh, reject Jesus as any sign of Messiah. But as they reject you have to realize that God is the one that makes things grow. You can plant and you can water all you want, but if God doesn't make the garden grow, nothing will grow. But if God wants the garden to grow, the garden can grow right up through a parking lot, and that is what you're going to see in a situation like this. So this is chapter 12, verse 20, and let's look at this together. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast, the same came up to Philip, which was of Bethesda of Galilee, then desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that when the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say to you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. <clears throat> now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying 
what death he should die. My goodness. <clears throat> 13 verses. I could have stopped 15 different places. When you look at the fact that as John is slowing down, we know now that this is five days from his death. Probably now that would have been this either that same Sunday, the same Sunday of the triumphal entry, or early in the week, probably that Sunday afternoon. We're five days away from his death. We're in John chapter 12, and John ends with the end of chapter 21. John is now slowing down time so that we're only now looking at Jesus' teaching. What is he saying? And we're realizing that this is God. We've come to, with, with John, to realize that this is actually God that we're listening to. And when you, when you recognize what that means, suddenly now you're, you're holding on to every one of his words. And his teaching is going to be so much more intense He's not, he's already offered himself as Messiah. He's shown all of his marvelous signs. He's healed to where there's no sickness left in Israel. He's completely um, emptied all of the country with sick people. There's nobody left. He's raised the dead. He has taken out people that are, are abused by demons. And he's, and he's restored and, and all of this in a way that people are still not sure about him. Because they don't understand why that they should be seeing them, but at the same time, he doesn't meet their, what they think of their cookie-cutter idea of the Messiah to be. They're still very confused and debating. And so what we'll see is Jesus is going to pull away, and he's going to teach his disciples. He's going to invest himself fully. He's not squirting his squirt gun at people of anybody that can listen and hear. He's going to pour his life into just a few men. And one of them a devil. And he's going, to, he's going to serve them and he's going to teach them and he's going to show them what's going to happen. And them at the same time, completely confused and befuddled. It, it really is amazing. So in some ways, John is slowing down time. But in other ways, he's speeding it up because we're going to see more and more of what God says. And when Jesus is saying something, every word that falls out of his mouth is enough to, to create a universe. And to, to look at even 13 verses is to do a dis, disservice to the Bible. But this is the passage that I want to look at because we can look at this in one kind of a, of a, of a, of a view. And so I entitled it, If It Die, It Brings Forth Fruit. So let's look at it. Starts in verse 20. And the, the background is that verse 19 where the Pharisee said, do you see how we prevail nothing? The whole world has gone after him. The, it's illustrating how the gospel is spreading. The gospel is spreading. The gospel grows. Once it's planted, the gospel grows. This is verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them which came up to worship at the feast. The same therefore came to Philip, which was Bethesda of Galilee, Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. If you remember right from the very beginning of John, when we looked at John, John wrote this book to be understood. He chose exactly what he was going to put in it. He has a message for us. And in the very opening verses of his book, this is what he said. He was in the world, 
and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave him he power to become the sons of God, even unto them which believed on his name. So we see some Greeks, and you have to realize that this was the Passover. This was, this was the, the number one Jewish festival where everybody was in town, and there were people from every place. We're going to see that after the death of Jesus at Passover, there were people from every nation there because God has always been putting his, his light into people's heart. He put eternity in your heart. If you have eyes to see, now, if you don't have eyes to see, you'll stare blankly like a lobotomy, just staring into mid-space and never see. But if you have been given eyes to see, then you see. And that, it doesn't matter what your background was. These people are from everywhere, from every nation, from every religion. And these Jews, or these Greeks, no longer worshipped Hercules. They no longer said Zeus was God. They recognized the God of heaven and earth was the God of the Hebrews, and they took a vacation, took their vacation, and went to Passover and went all the way to Jerusalem. And while they were in Jerusalem, saw Jesus. Now they had either heard him speak or something. But they come to Philip. Philip, with a Greek name, who's from, from Bethsaida. If you remember, above Galilee is a huge garrison of the Roman army. And that... They didn't speak Latin. They spoke Greek. All of the world spoke Greek. It was the language that everyone spoke. So they, he goes to him thinking, well, maybe he could introduce me. So he goes to Philip. But the last thing that Philip heard back in Matthew was he sent, Jesus sent out his disciples two by two to go preach. And he said, don't go anywhere but among the Jews. Don't go to the to Samaria. Don't go to the nations. You, you go to the lost house of Israel and you preach there. And so they're not sure what to do. So Philip comes to Andrew, and Andrew said, let's go see Jesus. We can trust him on this. So they go to Jesus, and they said, there are some people here to see you. And I love what it said. Sir, we would see Jesus. And I just wrote myself a note in the margin. Is this surprising to me? Here's people who are not prepared for Jesus, wanting to see him. And there's people that were completely prepared who had, with all their heart, rejected him, with every fiber of their being, rejected him. And these people who shouldn't be knowing to look for him said, sir, we would see Jesus. And I just put a question mark around that, and that question mark to myself was, how many questions could I ask like this? How many questions? How many people in this world would say, sir, let me see Jesus? How many Sunday school classes have I ever been where Jesus was nowhere to be seen? How many sermons have I sat under talking about how bad the United States of America is and never mentioned Jesus ever? I heard a pastor who I'd sit through suffered through 30 sermons of his, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm not prepared today. I didn't prepare my lesson today, so I'm just going to tell you who God is. It was the only sermon, the only sermon I'd ever heard him preach that had the gospel in it because he didn't prepare because people think, what I need to do is tell you all what to do. I need to take something from the Bible and tell you what to do. Oh, no. That's not how the gospel works. You show Jesus to people. You preach Jesus. And when people would say, 
I want to see him. I don't see him. I've never seen him. All the religious people in my life have only just put their finger in my face and told me that I needed to be good. As somehow I have Jesus by being good and they don't have Jesus. They don't have a relationship with God and their sins are not forgiven. And they have no power in this world and they can't influence for good at all. They can only pull to hell the rest of their friends and family. When you say, sir, I want to see Jesus, that is the heart of people who've been given eyes to see. God does that. That's the plantation of God, Paul says. The plantation of God means God chose a patch of ground and he put some seed in the ground and stuff started growing and everybody despised it. We saw that even from Daniel this morning. The ones who despise him and the nations who reject him, these are the very ones that he will be God over. But it's the plantation is, I want to see Jesus. And if you'll show me Jesus, I'll put my faith in him. If you'll show him, I'll put my faith. Because God it is that draws all men to me, Jesus said. God draws all men to me, and I will give them, I will raise them up on the last day. So here are these Greeks. And it is amazing because it's a open, this is like an open passage in the Bible. There's nothing happens to it. We don't even know if Jesus spoke to the Greeks. All we know is that the nations are now interested at the very mo moment that the, that the Jews have rejected. Before he comes to the cross, people are already wanting him. Now, how many? How many? Josephus has said there's two and, two and a half million people in town. And a handful of people from another country come and want an interview. They don't want to just hear him speak. They could stand in the crowd and hear him speak. They want an interview with him. They want to talk to him. They want him to talk to them. They want something from him. They want to know him. They want to investigate. This is God doing this. So this is, this is John 10. Because if we see that as one door is closing, another door is opening, we can see the hand of God behind all this. This is John 10. Other sheep, Jesus said, I have, which are not of this fold, and I must also bring them, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And then if you remember Caiaphas, the practical guy, he said, and not for that nation only, but also for all, that he should gather together into one all of the children of God that were scattered abroad. Well, as I paused here, I just thought, oh, my goodness. There's a door shutting. There's a door shutting on an entire people. This is the people that God has chosen thousands of years ago and fought for and invested in and showed himself to and showed his law to and did miracles among for countless generations. Is he just going to throw them away so that some Greeks can then be Christians? Is that what's going to happen? And my heart just grabbed with pain. It's amazing. When you sit and you just sit in the Bible, you can have thoughts that you never thought you'd think. It's tremendous. You're like, oh, my goodness. God can't throw them away. These are his. But it's obvious what's happening. They're, they're going to shout, crucify him. They're going to shout, be the curse on us and our, and our children forever. That's what they're going to shout. They are closing themselves off to God's mercy, and at the same moment, the church is being born through all, all places, every people, every person who would come to God, God will accept for Jesus' sake, because all of us are cruddy sinners. There's not any of us that will put your application in and say, well, here are my credentials, you should accept me. 
No. When you stand accepted before the throne of God, you'll say, my Jesus, my Jesus, that's all I have. I claim my Jesus. When that happens, you have nothing to offer and you will truly worship because you're not worshiping yourself. You're worshiping your Savior, and that honors God. And God will be honored, that person who honors him. That's what it says today. So even as some is rejected, others are being awakened. So are they being rejected? That's my question. Now, this is a a dread question and should certainly be the, the, the concentrated effort of way more than a few minutes in a sermon. But I just pulled a few verses. God in his justice hardens those who harden themselves. And without any doubt, these people have hardened themselves. This is Romans 9. As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant shall be saved. Only a few. Out of though there is a scadzillion, I will save a remnant. There will be a remnant of my people within Israel. This is further on. This is Romans chapter 11. This is Paul writing. For I would not, brethren, that you be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should also be wise in your own conceit. Oh, that's important. You're saved? You think you're saved because you're better somehow than anybody else? Ha! You're not better than anybody. There are people that will be dragged off to the fiery pits who are 50 times better than you've ever been, who never did the things you've done that I've done that we'll all know about each other. When you go, you'll say, Jesus is my, is my defense. But it says, the blindness in part, or another translation says, a partial hardening, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That God, in his justice, hardened them partially. He didn't harden them to stone completely that will be cast off forever. He hardened them partially until the time of the Gentiles shall come in. Because it was always his plan that the whole world would be his garden. The Garden of Eden was to extend to the four corners of the round globe. And that we would be forever his priests, serving him and he being our God. It was never to one people. He favored them, but we were all to be his, his own. He will be ours all throughout the world. So this is the next verse in chapter 11. And so all Israel shall be saved. It's only a partial hardening. And there shall come out of, the, of Zion the deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them when I take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as concerning the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. When God decides to do something, he doesn't change his mind. If he's decided through mercy to show Jesus to you, and you have with the most feeble hands in the world accepted his cross, he will not throw you away. He doesn't change his mind. He's not a fourth grader. He's God Almighty. This is Psalm 95. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of the temptation of the wilderness when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw me work, 
Forty years long I was grieved with that generation, and I said, This people do err in their heart, and they do not have known my ways. Unto them will I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Most of the people in this world will not go to heaven. But if you see it, if God has melted you, if today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You, with all of your effort, say, I want, sir, to see Jesus. That's what you do. Sir, I would see Jesus. Now, it points to the future. It points to the church. The church is now not Israel. The church is God's chosen people from everyone. And our, I'm sorry, our pedigree is not good enough. If Jesus would have only chosen his people, it would not have mattered how much you wanted God. You could have wanted God every moment till you died, and then you would have gone to the fiery depths because you would not have had a promise to you. But the promises are to you, to anybody, to whosoever. That's us. That's us from bug tussle. We can come to God and be accepted as children of God because of Jesus' work, because Jesus is expanding his love, not expanding his hate, because he's just been rejected. What should God have done? He should have blown his top. But instead, he expands his love to broaden it to where even the, the, the other nations are coming to him, not even knowing who he is. But they want to. God has given them want to. Jesus says the most amazing thing in response. So Philip and Andrew, the disciples, don't, they said, stay right here. We're going to go see. And they go to Jesus and they tell him, there are some Greeks here that would like to talk to you. And Jesus answers them, and this is what he says. This is verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily I say to you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So three times before in John's gospel, we've heard that Jesus' time wasn't come. His hour wasn't come. What are you talking about? My hour is not yet come. But now it says the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now if that was the last word of the book of John, if that was as far as we could go, then I would agree with most people would say, oh, the next thing that happened is that he rose to, to power, he ascended the throne, he took the throne of David, and he expelled the Romans, and he was gloriously victorious. But the next word out of Jesus' mouth after he's saying, the hour is now come now, is that the Son of Man should be glorified. Glorification will come to me. Glory will come to me. You've despised me, now glory is coming to me. But what he says now absolutely chokes in your throat. Verily, truly, truly, I say to you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. If you have a grain of corn, if you have a grain of wheat, and you keep it in a jar, it'll keep for a thousand years. But if you plant it in the, the ground, it will rot, seemingly. But in the, in the, the August... And in September, you will have rolling wheat fields. Now, that's glory. There is a glory in a stand of corn. There's a glory in a field of wheat that doesn't look the same as a jar of, of seeds. He said, unless that seed fall into the ground of die, it abides alone. 
But if it die, it's going to bear much fruit. Do you see where the fruit's coming from? The fruit is not just to the, to the Hebrews, the Jews that are believing him, which they are. They will come by the thousands and believe on him. But it will, it will extend to the nations, to the nations that the, that the Hebrews called the, the Gentiles, almost like with a smirk that they don't know. These uncircumcised people who didn't do the things we had to do, they, they will benefit the same, and the people who were invited to the party will be cast out into, our, all, all, into outer darkness. That's really, really hard. So you would think that he would, he would glorify himself by conquering Rome. But he's sp- speaking of his death and said, a planted seed comes out of the ground glorious. This is 1 Corinthians 15. This is most people's Easter sermon. Most people would, would pick chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians if you're going to speak on Easter because it's, it's a picture about resurrection. It's a picture. Look at the picture. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This little seed that would rot in the ground must have something that doesn't look like it's rotting. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible shall put on incorruption and the mortal shall be, have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that's writ- written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the sting of the law, the sting of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. That there will be a a corn that's glorious, where is the seed was not glorious. But in order to get the corn, in order to get the glory, you had to go through the planting. And Jesus was going to claim. Now, Jesus, who claimed to be Messiah that very day, who accepted the worship of multitudes, true worship, and he accepted it. And he, and he told the Pharisees that if the people stopped shouting, the rocks in the street would start shouting to him in praise and worship, knowing that he was their maker. So he knew he, who he was doing. He was not being all shucks. Jesus is not all shucks. Kick dirt, kick dirt. Jesus is saying, I will be glorified, and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to die and raise from the dead. It's shocking. It's shocking. It's unheard of. This is not how it works. This is not how glory works, except this is how glory works in the mind of God. And this is how God designed glory to work. And when you look at it in its entirety, there is no glory other than the glory on the other side of the cross. There is no glory. So I wrote down five things. The first thing I wrote is Jesus' kingdom is not of this cursed earth with its rebellious inhabitants. He's not just going to assume an earthly king and make it better. He's not going to make do and mend. That's not the way that he's going to do it. When he comes, he's going to have it all new. Every one of us will be new. The old things are passed away. Everything has become new. There's going to be a new creation. Those will be my people. And the place we're going to be is new. And I saw New Jerusalem coming out like adorned like a bride for her husband. And every element in this earth will melt with fervent heat. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah says. Because all of it will be new. You do not put new wine into old wineskins. He's not simply going to become the son of David, though he is the son of David. That's as much glory. That donkey ride was as much glory as, as Jesus Christ ever had on this world. The only crown he had grew out of thorns, and we put it on his head in a, in a mockery of his kingship, not in a, a coronation of his kingship. 
So this is from John 18. We'll get there eventually. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. He's speaking to Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But if I should not be delivered from the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. I have a kingdom. Oh, yes, I have a kingdom. And I have a people. I have citizens. And I have people that will be ready for me when I'm there. But it's not yet. It's not yet. Second thing I wrote, Jesus' kingdom comes only through the cross. It's only through the cross that his kingdom comes. This is from Luke 24. He raised from the dead that morning. His disciples are so perplexed, they don't understand anything. And he's speaking to two of them, unknown, uh, incognito. And they said, Jesus says to them, Oh, fools, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? and to enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them the scriptures of the things concerning himself. It had to be. It was must be. He must go through suffering and then enter his glory. There's no glory without the cross, not for the Son of God and not for you and not for me. There's no glory without a cross. If you have no cross, you will have no glory. Glory is on the other side of the cross. Number three. Jesus' glorification was only after the cross. It was the obvious next thing I had to write down. It was the obvious next step. This is Philippians chapter 2. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Wherefore, for that reason, because, because of this, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is Hebrews 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's glory, endured the cross, despising the shame. He spit on the shame of the cross and did it because he knew glory was coming. When the, when the devil offered him all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus was like, uh-uh, not biting. I will get all the kingdoms of this world. But it's not your way. It's not by worshiping you, Lucifer, pipsqueak. I'm not worshiping you to get nothing. I will have it all. And I'll bind you up and tie you with duct tape, and you'll be left at the garbage dump because there's nothing but glory ahead of me, but I have to go through the cross to get it, and I'm willing. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and endured the shame. Number four, I wrote, the cross is the means by which humanity is reconciled to God because it doesn't matter. With a word, God said, let there be, and it was. And it was good, all good. It was very good. There wasn't anything that wasn't good. And that was with a word. There was no pain of God. To create the set for the play was flawlessly innocent. Easy, easy, easy. But to have a people that would be the kingdom of people that would honor him as king took his death on the cross. It took all. It was the work of his strong arm. Our salvation was the work of God's strong arm. Not the words of his mouth. Not let there be. He didn't say let there be good people to worship me. No, it took him dying on the cross and going to his very enemies, the rebels and the renegades. Those are the ones that will be the populated, the, the, the beauties of heaven. And that is shocking. And that brings glory to Jesus Christ. And the more glory you bring to Jesus Christ, the more honor you bring to God the Father. That's what God insists. His love is towards Jesus, 
You honor Jesus, you honor the Father, and God will, will reward you with honor in, re, in return. Number last five, I said the church is changed by the cross. Any person who has been changed by the gospel, that cross has now become something that will never be the same to them. It, it can't ever be the same. It's the center. It's the middle. It's the, it's the lever. It's, the, it's what changes the world and changes you. And when people despise it, you despise them. When those wicked teenagers at high school despise the cross, I care for them personally and despise them because you are showing yourself to be wicked forever. If God does not have mercy on your soul, I see where you're going. I know what's going to happen because they mock it. They don't understand. They have no eyes to see. They've been taught to be wicked from their wicked parents because that's who we are. We're wicked people, all of us. And, but when you are changed, there's a change. And this is Galatians 6. God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I'm crucified to the world. Something happened when I saw the cross that the world lost its, its fancy. I didn't care anymore. I, I, I died to it. It died to me. I, go. I don't care. Have what you want. Have your parties. I don't care what you want. I don't want it. I don't want you what you want anymore. And I died to the world. It hates me and hates my guts. Can't wait till it abuses me to my death. But it doesn't matter because the cross changed me. This is Revelation chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals of the scroll, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood of, of every kindred, tongue, and people and nation, and hast made us unto us of, to God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the people of God. The people of God will be glorified, and we will be glorified because we look at Jesus and with worship say, because you were slain on a cross. Because you were slain, we have everything. Because you were slain, we don't know, we never knew what joy was. We had the inklingest idea of joy, and we loved you during the time when we didn't know what joy is. And now when you've shown us what joy is, what do we say but thank you? It's an eternal thank you. We love you, and we will love you more and more as we know more and more what you've done. This is back to John chapter 12. And he has yet to talk to the Greeks. He's still teaching his disciples. So look what he says. This is 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be. And if any man serve me, him will my father honor. It's discipleship, right? If he's your teacher and you're his disciple, there is a mark of your discipleship. Are you a disciple or are you a fraud? The mark of your discipleship is that you follow Jesus. Where Jesus is, you are. Now, I'm sorry. Jesus says it's the way it is. There is no glory but the cross. If you want to follow me into heaven, you'll follow me through a cross. This is Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So first, take up your cross, then follow me to heaven. Because where I am, there my servant will be. If I am on a cross, my servant will be on a cross. If I am in heaven, my servant will be in heaven. And somehow that takes, that takes the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. Because everything in me doesn't want a cross. Everything in me wants to be the easy way and the glorified way. I want people to think me awesome. I want people to give me stuff. I want to be luxuriated all my life. And I want that to never end. So in a sense, I want to be God. But if you, through the opening of your eyes, recognize that Jesus is God, and you would rather have him as your God than you as your God, and you depose yourself, and you deny yourself, and you take up his cross like a moron, like the whole world would think of as a moron, then you take up your cross not to, sh- not to hang around your neck, but to die on. And you follow him. Then you will follow him all the way to glory. Because where he is, you're his servant will be. And if you are his servant, you will be glorified with him. If you hate his life, that's interesting. He must hate his life. If you love your life, you'll lose it. If you hate your life, really that's just a relative term. Do I love God so much that the love I have for myself is so pale in comparison? It's like hate. That's what it means. It's not, it's not crazy. You don't have to be a sociopath to be a Christian. It's the idea that I need to love God more, and I can't love God more because I'm fallen, but God has changed me. He has recreated me, and now I have eyes to see, and I want him, and I follow him. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. That's what it is. So there's something interesting. Jesus said, you must buy the pearl. You must buy the field. That's a trade. You must buy the pearl. If you know that that pearl is worth more than the world and it costs you everything to buy it, you have to trade it all. You can't have it all. You can't have it both. You must trade. You must see Jesus as more valuable than you. You must have a love for him that's more valuable than the love you have for yourself. And you must trade. You must say, "Mm, I want that field. Oh, and my toaster oven's gone. And I still have, I have to give myself. I have to give myself. And when you sell yourself in exchange for the field, Jesus will say, good choice. And it took the Holy Spirit to do it. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life because why else would we choose Jesus instead of ourselves? That's the work of God. That's the plantation of the Lord. That's what it means. Romans 6 says, Likewise, reckon yourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Reckon yourselves, even though it doesn't look like it. I'm dead. No, that part of me that wanted that is dead. I want God. I'm alive to God. That's what I want. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul said. And nevertheless, it's I who live, but Christ that's living in me, not me that's living. That's what serving God is. Serving God is not being on committees. Serving God is not doing, doing, doing. It's not doing. It's the idea of loving God more than you love yourself. That's service. Everything that happens as a result of that will, be, will extend out into your day, extend out to the people you know, to the people you love, the people that don't love you. That will help. That's service. And God will honor that who serves me. That will honor him who serves me. This is John 
12 again, this is 27. Jesus is now going to share with the disciples into his own heart. Jesus is, Jesus is entrusting himself. Remember chapter 2? He knew what was in a man, so he never entrusted himself to anybody. He didn't care that they didn't understand. He just simply went off and was aloof. God is not aloof. When he came to, our, to us to be an Emmanuel, he came that he might actually show us himself. And he is now opening up the most inside tender part of God Almighty to the fishermen. And he said, now is my soul troubled. This is 27. What shall I say? Father, for, save me from this hour? It's for this reason that I came to, Je- for, to this hour. Jesus was born that he might die for our sins. That's why he came. He, through the volume of the book, was read today. I, Lo, I come. It says, Psalm, four, Psalm 40, I come because you said that I must come. I decide that I come. The Son of Man came. Why? That's my next question. Why, question mark? And I just pulled out Luke 19. He came to save the lost. The lost. The lost. Who don't know they're lost and don't care. Don't care that they're going over the hill. They don't care that they're going to hell. They don't care. They're clueless. They don't want God. They're lost. They're lost in their hearts. They're, they're just they're waiting for a bus. They're just happy to be here. And for that, Jesus traded himself for them. That's why he came. This is 1 Timothy 1. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. In Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief sinner. The worst of the bunch. The worst. That's why Jesus came. Now he speaks to God. This is one of the public prayers of Jesus. Very, very few in the Bible. This is one of them. John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name. That's his whole prayer. That's it. That's all he says. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And everyone around thought it was thundering. What happened? What was that? Now, that's interesting. Jesus then says, it wasn't for my sake the voice came, but for your sakes. And most of the people there didn't even know that there was a voice. So it wasn't for their sakes. They thought it thundered. But John says what God said. That meant that John heard it. There were people in that crowd of people that had ears to hear. And God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Or, or God said. And then John wrote that down. And then the people around was like, what was that? I don't know. It's thundered. Or maybe an angel spoke to him. It's easy to get people to be superstitious. Everybody's like, everybody's pseudo-religious. That's not a problem. It's the godliness that's the problem. It's not religious that's the problem. That's not the problem. And so there is some that got it and some that didn't. And what I wrote down, I laughed. I laughed when I wrote down. I wrote down, these are adults talking over the heads of children. Have you ever talked over the heads of your children? And then as they get older, you're afraid that they're catching on with more than you think they are. So we, Melissa and I were talking about the dog over the dog's head. And the dog looked at me. I'm like, I think he knew what I just said. We were talking over his head. It meant that God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, were talking together about something that everybody was clueless about. I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name. Jesus talks to, to Martha and said, 
did I not tell you that if you would only believe, you would see the glory of God? And then he speaks into the tomb the very next breath. That's the glory of God. The glory of God is that he came and lowered himself to save sinners. That's the glory of God. And it will, I will glorify it because Jesus has not yet suffered on the cross. But he will and he will raise him from the dead and glorify his name. Jesus will be glorified way more after the cross than before it. Moses, God was speaking over Moses' head. Moses was so enthralled, God was giving him the law. He was up on the mountain with God in a cloud. And he was giving him the law. And Moses said, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. Show me your glory. That's all I could think of. I know you this much. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, I'm sorry. If, if I showed you your glory, you would, I, would, I would spread you into atoms. I would atom atomize you. I can't show you my glory. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll pass by, and I'll, I'll let my goodness pass by, and you'll see the residual radiance of my goodness, and that's all I can give you. And Jesus just said, show, glorify yourself, and God said, I'm going to. And the world is going to look upon your naked body nailed to a cross, and the glory of God will go to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the universe. It will extend to all time, into all people, into all places, and that glory will radiate like a laser beam into the future and into the past and into the present in all places. I will show you my glory. And you thought I was glory was shininess? What? God speaking over the heads of people who don't understand. And only Jesus knew I will glorify it again, God said. And Jesus was the only one in town that thought, yes, I don't know how it's going to be done. They're going to beat me to, to sense, senseless, and they're going to nail me to a tree. And at the end of my life, you will raise me up. That is glory. Jesus says that for the sakes of those who perceive it, Brethren, do you perceive that? That's my question. Do you perceive it? Now is judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. Done. That's it. I am going to be glorified. It's going to be through my death. And now judgment has come on this world. And now the prince will be cast out. He will be neutered and worthless. There will be no, no more he can do. There will be no more he can trick. There will be nothing he can do. The war will be over. The war will be over. Now, go ahead and tell your neighbors that the war is over. That's what we're to do. That is our commission. Go and tell them the war is over. But you have to make sure that you're right with the prince that won. He's already paid it, but you have to make sure. And Jesus said the most beautiful. How many beautiful words can I say in this one little 13 verses? Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. Now, that's amazing. Remember, as Moses lifted up the snake, if anyone looks upon the snake, though he were bitten, he will not die. And, though I, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men. What? That that's attractive? It's attractive to see a hideous, gruesome body expiring on a tree? Yes. That's what God said. And for 2,000 years, people in all generations, despite their beheadings, are coming to the Lord because God is leading them. And I just want to say hallelujah.